I, can, I guess we can all think of a time when we first read a book of the Bible and getting our initial impressions of that book. I can remember coming to the book of James uh, many years ago, fortunately raised in a Christian home, and thinking, this just seems like a bunch of unrelated thoughts kind of put together. We can look at James, and I've talked with others who had this initial impression, who, when he writes, it can seem like an abrupt series of bunny trails. The first six verses from chapter 5, if we were to have read them tonight by themselves on first read, might seem like out of nowhere. After all, if you look at the book of James and chapter 4, he's talking about warnings against worldliness and boasting about the tongue and prior to that wisdom from above, all these things, I would argue that they are interrelated together. Even though our, our intermittent of James has been spread out over a few years, James is giving us a directed look at the Christian life through these various situations that he sees evidenced in the 12 tribes that are scattered abroad. Tonight, from chapter 5, James will have us consider the life of wisdom as it applies to my wealth, to my possessions, to my employment. And the question is this, am I living for this temporal world in those areas of life? Or do my actions towards others reflect belief in a world to come? Am I just living for the here and now? Or am I also living my life in regards to my wealth and possessions as, this, as if there is a reality beyond this physical world? See, one of the analogies that I found helpful to explaining people uh, when it comes to James and these kind of themes that he brings out is the continuity of James is very much like a tapestry or if you ever have done needlepoint or have seen a needlepoint canvas. If you look at the underside of a needlepoint, it looks like a jumbled bunch of threads going a million different directions. But as James goes through these various topics, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, we see the connections from the top side that gives a beautiful picture. He's drawing on threads throughout this that he's woven in so that when he comes to chapter 5, verse 1 that we read earlier, it should jump off the page to say he's coming back to that thought that he introduced earlier. Now he's coming back to it. As a case in point, one of the reasons why I read from chapter 4, verse 13 to 17 is to show the connection with the immediate passage. As it's been about one and a half months since we last looked at James, chapter 4, verse 13 to 17 in the sermon, and it's important to see the connections. So just look at your Bibles. Chapter 4, verse 13, and chapter 5, verse 1, they both begin with this come now, this cordative, this exhortation, come now. In verse 13, it is boasting about profit and financial gain that they will go to this city for a year or two and make money. In chapter 5, verse 4 and 5, is a, a life that is lived by wealth that is fraudulently gained and self-indulgence. Chapter 4, verse 14, chapter 5, verse 5, there is an uncertainty about life, but a certainty about death. Chapter 4, verse 15, gives the corrective, if the Lord wills, whereas chapter 5 gives a call, which is basically to weep and to howl. 
See, in verse 16 of chapter 4, in that section, the key problem is that of boasting in oneself and one's power. And in chapter 5, well, we'll get there. That's what we're going to look at tonight, the main problem with chapter 5. So as we consider chapter 5, verses 1 to 6 from the book of James tonight, I'd like us to consider three main points as we approach this passage. First, we're going to look at these verses to see what it looks like to live for the mere treasure for today. Second, we will look at the true treasure for the last day. And then third and finally, we'll look at the gospel treasure for the day today. So again, the mere treasure for today, true treasure for the last day, and the gospel's treasure for the day today. First of all, the the mere treasure for today. In this section, there are three primary characters, and I'll tell you who they are. There are what's described as the hoarders, because they are hoarding wealth, as it says in verse 3. There are the workers who are being uh, transgressed against. And there is this person at the end or this group of people called the innocent or the innocent one. Some versions say the innocent man. So first of all, we have the hoarders. This is not a TV show about people who collect things in their house, okay, just to make that clear. It's about people who collect for themselves things from this world, wealth in an ill-gotten way. So who are they? Well, they are these landowners that we'll kind of look at to see what they have done. But it's interesting that Scripture does not call them to repent or change necessarily, but to weep and to howl. That is what they are called to do. Look at verse 1. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Now, one of the first things that people ask when they come to this section of Scripture is, who is this written to? Some commentators will argue Christians, and others will argue non-Christians. I'll give you some evidence for each one. First of all, for Christians, which I think has the stronger evidence, but it says this, at the beginning of this letter, it is written to Christians, to the 12 tribes, to believers that are scattered abroad through that ancient world and to us today. Number two, he's already dealt with serious issues that are going on with the church head on. And we would naturally assume that if this is going, he's dealing with it, it is going on within the church. It's quite possible that these landowners would be withholding the wages from their workers. After all, in chapter 2, it gives the, the story of when a rich man comes in, could be possible that maybe one of these landowners came into their assembly and they treated him differently based on externals that we discussed earlier. Also in this interpretation that James is writing to Christians is he's challenging, as he has already done, their inconsistency with what they are said to profess about the gospel and how they're living their life on a daily basis. Other commentators will say James is writing to non-Christians. They cite the fact that there's the lack of what is more pervasive in some of his parts of his letter of the brothers. Brothers, 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 there's no brothers. They also say that if he's speaking speaking to non-Christians, though, he's speaking in a prophetic voice, which is addressing the injustices of society based on the revealed word of God. 
and challenges them with the certainty of the spiritual reality that is inevitable and that is real and is coming in finality. Well, either way, when we think about it, he could be writing generally to both, to address how their actions, whether Christians with their inconsistency or non-Christians in their self-indulgence and ignoring of God's reality, are acting out of accord with the righteous life that God desires. You see, in every age, men and women have been so caught up in this world that they tend to live like this for the here and now. See, one of the things I want to stress about this, though, as James condemns these people, that that the passage specifically and the Bible as a whole make clear that money and wealth by themselves are not the issue. What is the issue is a love of, a dependence upon, a wrapping our identity around wealth and possessions at the expense of worshiping the one true God. One of my earliest realizations of this came in a very unlikely way, as was often the case in my family growing up and even in my family today. We would have frequent game nights. One night, probably when I was about in middle school, my family was playing a Bible trivia game. Now, I know, my tastes in games have improved over the years, so please. Um, Everything was fine in the Bible trivia game until the following question was asked. What is the root of all evil? The answer from one section of the family was money, to which the other team deemed it incorrect. This was followed by an impromptu Bible study for some time to come. When one group was trying to say that their answer was right, and ultimately there was an appeal to 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10, which says, for the love of money is the root of all kind of evil. It was there that game night ended and table talk commenced. To put it another way, the Bible makes clear that it is the love of money, not money itself, that is the problem. However, each one of us can testify and be honest and say that there has not been some point in our life when we have not struggled with how best to use the money that God has given us. We struggle with a lack of money. We can be swayed by the seductiveness and false security of wealth and investment portfolios at the expense of trusting God for our daily bread. We say things like, if I only had this much money, I would be happy. Well, the text before us is dealing with a specific kind of abuse and love of money. It is a picture of those who have put their full confidence and trust in earthly wealth and riches. It is focused only on this life. The kingdom of God has always needed financial resources, and people have often given throughout history to the needs of the church. Even in Jesus' ministry, the women that provided for his ministry, Paul with Lydia providing money for Paul to do his work. Again, what what is going on in James is a self-focused, only looking at this world view of hoarding of riches and possessions. It is a view that only has this present life in mind. Look at verse 2. Verse 2 of chapter uh, 5 of James talks about how your riches have rotted 
Your garments are moth-eaten. The gold and silver that they have clung to, that they have collected, is now corroded. And their corrosion will be this evidence against them and will eat your flesh like fire, similar to what Paul, uh, what James says earlier here about, in chapter 3, about the fire that is set on fire by hell. Verse 5 is quite sobering. While they lived on earth in luxury, these rich world, present world only focused individuals are being fat, fattened, perhaps physically because of their wealth and they can afford more food, certainly spiritually because this is metaphorical for the day of judgment. And so the real, real fault of these rich hoarders of possession is that they ignore the spiritual reality that is around us and that we live in. See, James has already laid out this thread that is in this tapestry in his letter. If you turn back to chapter 1, in verses 9 to 11, he says this, Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuit. And again, in chapter 2, verses 6 to 7, James writes this, But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the, riches, the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you are called? Now, I know the immediate reaction might be something like this. You're listening and saying, well, that's not me. I don't have enough money to do this sort of thing. I'm not a tyrannical employer amassing wealth at the expense of others. But these verses call us to consider the ways that we might take advantage of other people and the ways that we might amass stuff, whether it's riches or possessions, merely for this present life, for the enjoyment of this life, and not looking at the life to come. See, more often I think we might associate with the next character in this story, the workers who are working for their wages and yet not getting their wages, their wages. Which leads us to the second character, the workers. Well, what are they to do? The, the hoarders of wealth in this world are to weep and to howl. The workers, interestingly enough, are to cry out and to wait. Not what you expect people who are being treated with injustice to do. Look at verse 4. Behold, James Wright writes, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. Well, how might workers in James's day be oppressed? Well, there was a custom in those days is that you got paid as you go system where you pay, got paid for that day's wages. We have a picture of this in Matthew chapter 20, in one of Jesus' parables, where the landowner comes and finds workers in the marketplace, and he agrees to pay them a day's wages, even though some worked from the very beginning of the day, and others started around three o'clock in the afternoon. They all got paid the same amount. 
to bring this analogy to James chapter 5 and verse 4. It's as if they would reach the end of the day and the landowner would say something like, no guys, I'm sorry, I left my wallet at home. I don't have any money right now, but come back tomorrow and we'll settle up then. Give them an IOU. And the next day they come back and the same thing repeats itself. And we can surmise this from verse 4, which says, The wages that you failed to pay your workmen. So again, the issue is not riches themselves, but keeping back riches by fraud, by hoarding wealth that belonged to others. Another example of this from the Bible can be found in the story of Ruth. She ends up in the field of Boaz, one of her mother-in-law's relatives. If you recall the events, Boaz shows extra kindness to Ruth. He realizes that she's not from Israel. He takes compassion upon her. He instructs his workers to show her extra kindness by leaving extra sheaves of grain in her path so she can come along and glean more to take care of her and her mother-in-law. You see, Boaz in that story acted exactly the opposite way than the self-indulgent landowners described in James chapter 5. After all, from the text, these characters in James 5 appear to be ruthless. Back to James 5. In light of the held back wages, what are the defrauded workers called to do? It's actually in the next section, which we'll look at in two weeks from now, that those experiencing injustice are called to wait, to be Patient, if you look there in verse 7. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. Now, this is not what we would expect in our day and age. How can James say this? How can he turn a blind eye, seemingly, which he's not, to earthly injustice? Well, we need to see the next, the third character, which is actually our second main point. The third character of this narrative is what is described as the innocent. If you look at chapter 5, verse 6, it says to the rich who are hoarding their wealth, you have condemned, you have murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. So the third and pivotal character moves us from the treasure of today and the treasure to the treasure of the last day. Not just consumed with our possessions and our wealth in this world to use them for our pleasure and to hoard them. But that this phrase here that we'll, we'll unpack and look at is the way to look at the redeeming work of Jesus Christ as he turns our hearts from a mere physical world and what we can enjoy in this lifetime on this earth to look at the life to come and to enjoy the treasure at the last day. See, on one level, James calls us to consider the history of those who have been murdered throughout Scripture who were innocent, who did nothing wrong. Immediately after leaving the garden, Adam and Eve give birth to Cain and Abel. The first major story after that is Cain killing his brother Abel, not because Abel had done something wrong, but because he didn't like the fact that his sacrifice was not accepted and Abel's was. And this is a a paradigm throughout Scripture that the godly, the righteous, 
are often persecuted not because they're criminals or they've done anything wrong, but because they follow God. There are many in Scripture who have this happen, that even though they are doing exactly what they are supposed to do, that they do not receive commendation for that, but they are actually murdered or killed or persecuted. This goes throughout the Scriptures until we get to the last book of the Bible. In the book of Revelation, it talks about those who were martyred for the name of Jesus. Again, not for being criminals, but for naming the name of Christ. And in Revelation 11, we have the public and unjust murder of these two witnesses, slain merely for proclaiming the suffering servant of Jesus Christ. You see, James himself suffered death as he writes these things and, and records these things and teaches these things. He himself suffered death by the rich and influential of his day. He was murdered by the Sanhedrin, which was the ruling body in Jerusalem. James was killed in 62 AD. The Sanhedrin, which was composed of the Sadducees and the Pharisees, was like the supreme court for the Jewish people at that time. The Sadducees, in particular, were usually wealthy aristocrats. And their wealth was the primary motive. Yes, they were religious, but their primary area of interest was politics and status. Here's how Josephus, the Roman historian, even though he himself was Jewish, was a Roman historian, relates James's death from a historian's point of view. Quote, High priest Ananias convened the judges of the Sanhedrin and brought before them a man named James, the brother of Jesus, who was called the Christ and certain others. He accused them of having transgressed the law and delivered them up to be stoned. So here is James, maybe foreshadowing his own death by the power of the Holy Spirit as he records these things. James was innocent. He did nothing wrong. However, while he was innocent, and many others in the Scripture were innocent, the innocent one is a general term for all of these people, but there is clear reference to the innocent one, the just one, Jesus Christ. This is what I would say is the exclamation mark of the passage. It is the hope that gives the poor of this world and the poor in spirit as they follow and look forward to the life to come, any hope of restoration and redemption. To capture this section, the New American Standard Bible captures it The Greek masculine singular here as this, you have put to death the righteous man, the righteous man. And the King James Version translates it, he does not resist you. And I debate with myself often, should these be capitalized? The capital H for he and the capital R, righteous, capital M, man. Well, regardless of If you think it should be capitalized or not, it's clear that the work of Christ is the driving point of James's letter. The Christian, exemplified by being poor in spirit and desperate for the filling of Jesus, does not conquer by fighting and retaliating or protesting or copying non-Christian approaches to rectifying injustice, but by patiently enduring 
and entrusting him or herself to the will of the Father, just like Jesus did to his Father and our Father. Even though he was innocent, he did not respond to insults, as it says in Isaiah chapter 52 and 53. See, the way of the gospel is so countercultural. In our world, when we're told to fight for our rights, to organize, to uh, protest, make a viral social media account, we read Paul's words in Romans chapter 12. See, after spending 11 chapters explaining the work of Christ on our behalf for sinners who wanted nothing to do with God and yet now being given life by the Spirit of seeing God's incredible work of salvation for us, Paul exhorts his followers to live as a living sacrifice based on the resurrection power of the suffering servant, of the innocent one who died for us. Here's what Paul says in Romans chapter 12, beginning in verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. And he ends with this this phrase, Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. See, in our world where everyone is fighting for every cause imaginable and seems so eager to fight for their rights, Christians are called to be different because we are different. It's because our existence on earth is not merely to have our best life now, but to suffer for the name of Christ in an unjust, broken world Because on the last day, the innocent one, the innocent one, Jesus Christ, will set all things straight. You see, this passage before us gives us two choices on life. Will we live just merely contented for the riches and the pleasures and the hoarding of things for this age, oftentimes defrauding others in the process? hurting others by our actions because I refuse to see that there is a life to come? Or will I live my life, use my possessions, use my belongings, my talents, my time for what lasts? So the choice before us is this overarching contrast, and I want to employ the agricultural imagery that James used earlier in his letter. When talking about the tongue, he said it's impossible for a fig tree to produce figs or this kind of, you are going to produce what you are. So look at the fruit in this passage that the rich do. As they trust in their riches, they produce fruit, but it is not fruit that is good. It is thorny. It is divisive. As they live merely for this life, it's the opposite of being poor in spirit. And it's actually counter to the uh, audience that James is writing to in chapters 1 through 5. 
as they produce this this fruit of ill-gotten gain and holding it back from others who rightly deserve it, they are hoarding this. They are there comes from their hearts that desire pleasure in this life now. And it's the opposite of generosity, humility, and wisdom that James has been calling us to do throughout this book. And it really boils down to the outlook that they look at the world in this passage, those rich hoarders of possessions and wealth, look at this world as all that there is. And yet, we know that there is a world to come. See, these commands, these reminders are so needed for us as Christians today. If we both as individuals and as the church collectively in the body of Christ live this way, what would be the impact on our workplaces and our neighborhoods. The work of Jesus Christ is not accomplished through programs or social activism, but by hearing the word of God and living it out. So what are we to do? If we've seen the temptation to live by the mere treasure of today, as these landowners did in those days, if the work of Jesus Christ causes us to seek the true treasure of the last day, then let's third consider the gospel's treasure in the day-to-day. And just some, some real practical challenges for us as we live this week in light of this passage. And the first challenge is this. This week they'll probably be, re, be reminded, there'll be times that I'm reminded that my human earthly existence is not merely for the here and now, but also for the world to come. See, at the heart of James's challenges to these hoarders of riches is to weep and to howl because they have not yet experienced the saving work of Christ possibly or don't understand it in its fullness if they are Christians because they are only living for this life. Jesus himself reminds us that there is a better life coming and that while money will always be a temptation to distract us from the real thing, from the eternal thing, we need to remember what he says, what Jesus himself says in Matthew 6, which no doubt James is thinking about and echoing. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 19, Jesus says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourself treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, There your heart will be also. You cannot serve God and money. So tonight, whether you are a Christian or not a Christian, the same question applies. Where are you you storing your treasures? Are you storing them here on earth? Will they meet the demise of rust or moth or corrosion? Or are we laying up for ourselves a treasure that is to come that will never spoil, fade, or perish, kept in heaven by God for us. Second challenge for the day-to-day this week. Remember that while we may endure hardship and injustice as we follow hard after God, he remains faithful to his people. Now, it's easy to miss in this passage, but what James does is who does he cite is listening to the cries of these workers, of these mistreated laborers. Look at verse 4 again. 
in, in the ESV, it says, the Lord of hosts. In the NIV, it says, Lord Sabaoth, or Sabaoth, depending on where you're from. It is the name of God that illustrates that he is the, gar, the God of armies, that he is waging war against his and our enemies. It is a special name for God, the triune God who has his armies in array to defend the cause of the innocent and the mistreated and the poor in spirit. Now, we may not see this with our eyes or sense it or have a feeling that this is going on, but this is what James says, the specific term for our God who fights for his people. See, as we toil in this life, we are reminded that the battle is already won. We can enjoy treasure in the last day because of the work of the innocent one who has secured victory over death for us. Third challenge in the day today. But the scriptures are full of calls for God's children to persevere in this broken and unjust world. While it might not seem so, these are words of encouragement from James chapter 1 to 6 because they remind the downcast, the struggling in this world, that when we look around and see the wisdom of this age, we see Hollywood stars and influencers seem to prosper unchecked. We're reminded of the words of Psalm 49. And the first part of this we read as our call to worship. But this is what the psalmist says in verses 12 and other sections in Psalm 49. Man in his pomp will not remain. He is like a beast that perishes. Be not afraid when a man becomes rich, when the glory of his house increases. For when he dies, he will carry nothing away. His glory will not go down after him. For though while he lives, he counts himself blessed. And though you get praise when you do well for yourself, his soul will go down to the generation of his fathers who will never again see light. Man in his pomp, yet without understanding, is like the beast that perishes. See, as children of God, we need to remind ourselves of the human condition that we are in as we long for God, as we long for the treasure in the last days, that we will come a point when all the things that we didn't somehow get in this life, we will get the final treasure, which is worshiping God forever and ever and ever and loving every minute of it. Let's pray together. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we pray that you would allow us to see past the material stuff of this world, the money, the possessions, the status, the acclaim that we often crave and see your greater purposes. Be glorified as you work through us this week in our employment, in our families, and in all of life. In the strong name of Jesus, we pray these things. Amen.